Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Well, good morning. Can you hear me now? Just barely. You'll notice that uh, I'm not 100% today. I've had the creepy crud for the last week. I did get tested twice, so hopefully it's not COVID. It was negative both times. But I can tell you this, whatever I have, you don't want it. So uh, just stay away from me as much as you can. But I'm, I'm grateful to be here this morning and to be able to bring God's Word. We're starting this new year with uh, this series where we're hoping to build a biblical foundation for our new mission statement, which is that we are a Christ-centered church, a Christ-centered community for you, for Tulsa, and for the world. And so last week, Pastor Colin did a great job uh, laying a foundation for what it means to be a Christ-centered community, to be a Jesus-first people, and that's our first priority. You know, we can do a lot of things. We can be very busy. We can get a lot of good things done but if we're not a Christ-centered community, we've lost our way. That's the reason that the church exists. And this word community is important because that's been God's plan from the very beginning, to create a movement of people, a community of people who will worship Him and who will serve Him and who will be His representatives or ambassadors, as we talked about last week, to the world. And so it's out of this identity as a Jesus-centered people that we live out our mission to be for others, because we serve a God who is for us. And so as we reflect the character and nature of God, we serve a God who's for us, and therefore we live out that identity by being for others. So what does it mean to be for others? What does it mean that we are for you? Well, primarily it means that we are for you becoming the person that God created you to be. Not your idea of what you want to be, not your parents' idea of what they hope you to be, not your boss's idea of what they hope you to be, or culture, or any of that. What we want for you is what is best for you, and what is best for you is for you to live into the identity and the purpose for which God created you, and that is to become a person who looks more and more like Jesus and who reflects him to the world. So the way that we could be the most for you is to do whatever we can to help you become the person God created you to be. And so whoever you are, we are for you in that way. I believe this is an important message for us right now. We're living in a time when the loudest voices and the most noise is around what people are against. And and yes, certainly, there are things that we're against, but we want to be known primarily by what we are for And we serve a God who is for us, and therefore we are for you. There's many verses we could go to to build a case for being a person who is for others. We know that's part of the Christian identity. We are a people who are for the oppressed, for the poor, for the marginalized, for the broken, for the hurting. We are for others. But we can only live out that identity as we understand that God is for us. And so that's the focus of our text today, is to look and see how God is for us, and therefore, 
we reflect him by being for others. And so foundationally in our mission, do we do this perfectly? No. But we want to become a people that are for you, whoever you are. However much money you have in your bank account, no matter what clothes you wear, no matter what neighborhood you live in, no matter what ethnicity you are or how old you are, no matter what job you have, no matter who you are, whoever you are, we are for you because God is for you in the way that we want to do whatever we can to introduce you to God, to help you know who God is and to live into that identity. We're for you. So the text we're focusing on today comes in the middle of a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Uh, This letter contains Paul's most thorough and systematic explanation of the gospel. I'm not going to give you a lot of background information today for two reasons. Number one, because I think the core message here can be understood without a whole lot of context. But even more so, I'm not going to give you a lot of background here because in a few weeks, a little teaser here, we're going to be starting a series on Romans 1 through 8, going all the way from the beginning up to this point in the book. We're going to spend, I think, 12 or 13 weeks uh, here in about five or six weeks. So we're going to get a lot of this. Uh, It just so happened that this text was a great one for our mission series and to be for you. So Paul's primary aim in this portion of the letter is to explain that if God is for his people, nothing and no one can ultimately oppose God's love and God's good plan for us, for you. Nothing, nothing can oppose that. That's really good news. Paul wants to give us the assurance and the confidence of this in the truths of the gospel. This confidence is not found in our greatness. It's not found in our ability to be faithful to what God has called us to do. It is found in the confidence we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in his incredible love and grace for us. And so not only is the follower of Jesus guaranteed ultimate restoration and eternal salvation, but we're also promised that God's hand will guide us even through the storms of life. So his goal is to provide us with this assurance that no one or nothing can ultimately prevail against those who belong to Christ. God is for us. He's proven it fully and finally through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are more than conquerors and nothing can separate us from God's love. So Paul organizes his thought around a series of questions. We're going to look at each of those right now. The first question is verse 31, what shall we say in response, in response. It's important to understand that the journey of faith, that your spiritual life begins as a response to what God has already done. We don't create faith in ourselves. God has already been working in our life. Before we ever come to the point that we surrender our life to the truth about who God is and what He's done for us, He has already been working. Our life of faith is a response to God and what He has done. He takes the initiative. He has made the first move. And in fact, He carries us all the way through to the very end. So Paul says, what shall we say in response to these things? What are the these things? Well, it's everything that He has already said up to this point in the book. All eight chapters. What are we doing in response to all that God has done for us? And again, we're going to get into the incredible details of that coming up here this spring. 
What shall we say in response to the fact that God has justified us, that He has brought us from death to life, that He has adopted us into the family of God, given us peace with Him and with our neighbors, that He has given us a calling, He has empowered us, He has filled us with His Holy Spirit. What are we going to say in response to this incredible truth that God is that for us? How shall we respond to this? How do we respond knowing that God is for us. And then the next question is, who can be against us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, Paul is not saying that no one will be against us or that no one will oppose us. In fact, Jesus promised us that there will be those who misunderstand us, who reject us, who maybe even persecute us because of our belief and our following Jesus. We know that Paul, of course, had many people who opposed him in his stance for the gospel and his ministry. So when he says, who can be against us, he's not saying no one can be against us. He's basically saying, what does it matter if they're against us? If God is for me, then whoever else is against me, that doesn't matter compared to God. Being, God's the one that you want to be for you. If there's anybody for you, you want God to be for you. And if God is for you, then you can endure the challenges of whatever else will be against you. God is for us, and if we are for Him, we can trust that He will stand with us. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Now, this is not a new idea. Paul's reflecting what had already been known and experienced by God's people. In Psalm 56, David wrote, Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. God has proven it many ways, but now we have even greater revelation. Paul is writing from a perspective of how do we know that God is for us? Because sometimes we question that. We question if God is really for us, if He's really on our team, if He really loves us. And the definitive and final answer is always to look to the cross. If, whenever we doubt it, that God is for us, God has said He is for us because He gave us His Son. And Paul goes on to then contend that if God has given us His Son, if He's given us His best, then how will He not give us all things? Will He not be involved in the details of our lives and give us what we need to do what He has called us to do? He will be faithful to us. How could God give us His Son but yet then fail to carry us through, fail to continue to be faithful to, to us in the midst of the storms and challenges of life that He's about to go on explaining here in the upcoming verses? Let me give you a couple of examples. They're kind of silly compared to the weight of what we're talking about here. But imagine for a moment that I bought my wife a brand new car. And then between the time that I got the car and I gave it to her, the car got dirty, it rained or whatever. And so I decided I needed to go to the car wash and get it cleaned up before I give her this incredible gift. And I go to the car wash and I realize, oh man, it's like 10 bucks to wash your car. It's gone up. It would be silly for me to go, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, spend $10 to wash up this brand new car. I'm just going to give her the dirty car. That would be silly. Or, or think about it this way. If I bought tickets to go to the Final Four, and then I get there and I drive to the game, and I realize that parking is 25 bucks, it'd be silly to go, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm not paying $25. I'm just going to go home. It'd be silly. Again, compared to what we're talking about here, but Paul, he's saying, look, God has given us Jesus. He has spared no expense 
How will he not be faithful to you in all things? How will he not give you and provide you what you need? He will be faithful to you. When we consider verse 31, it's helpful to know what Paul has just said before this in verses 28 through 30. It's, it's part of the foundation of the song we sang just before the sermon. In verse 28, it says that with God in control, if we are in Christ, we can have the confidence that everything ultimately is working for our good. This is true. For those who are in Christ, that promise is true. All things somehow, some way, are working together for our ultimate good, even genuinely bad things and hard things. In God's economy, He takes it all and He works it together, and it forms us, and it shapes us, and it causes us to trust in Him, and it forms our character. And even genuinely bad things don't accomplish the evil that they intend. For us in Christ, God is mysteriously working it all together for our ultimate good. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? No one, essentially. The second question and the third one I've kind of packaged together. He says, who can bring a charge against us or condemn us? His answer again is no one. No one can bring a charge against us if we are in Christ because God is the ultimate judge and he has declared us innocent. So those who try to accuse us are ineffective because God has declared us in Christ clean. He's declared us just and righteous, even though we don't deserve it, because Christ is in us. He is our life. Again, Paul's reflecting what the people of God have known. In Isaiah 50, the prophet writes, He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? Now, again, Paul is not saying that no one will bring charges against us or try to condemn us. In fact, I think there's really three main categories uh, of people that try to bring charges against us. The first one is the devil or Satan. He's known as the accuser. That's one of the titles. And the devil will try to bring stuff against us, even though we're in Christ. He'll try to bring back up the past and old sins and, and accuse us and say that, you know what, there's your life's not going to amount to anything. You're never going to get over this. And God will never forgive you of this. The devil tries to lie to us about these things. The other second category of those who bring false charges against us is other people in our life. We know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no record of wrong. Right? Love keeps no record of wrong. The problem is none of us can love purely like God does. And so we do keep a record of wrong. And so when we get mad at people or we want to get under their skin or get back at them, we bring back old stuff from the past, don't we? And we try to accuse. The third category of those who bring accusation and charges against us is yourself. First John chapter 3 says sometimes even our own hearts try to condemn us. We're our own worst critic. We don't believe the freedom that we have. We don't believe the truth that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And the solution to the criticism and the charges from any of those categories is to preach the gospel to ourselves. To believe the truth. To believe that in Christ there are no charges that stand against us. We are free and clear. Our debt has been 
paid. It's also why we need worship. We need the truth of the Lord's table. We need to be reminded. We need to be in community with other believers who will remind us of these truths. And then in verse 34, it says that Jesus is now at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. That's an incredible truth. Think about that. Jesus, God the Son, is interceding on your behalf believer before the throne of God. How does that work? I don't know, but it's cool, right? Jesus is more committed to your discipleship and your growth than you are. That's good news. Jesus is praying and interceding on your behalf. Theologian Louis Burkhoff writes this. He says, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us. Even when we're negligent in our own prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection against dangers of which we're not even conscious and against the enemies that threaten us, though we do not notice it. It's a consoling, comforting thought that Jesus is praying for us and the Holy Spirit in another context. And so, Who can come against us? No one. Who can bring a charge against us or condemn us? No one. And then the final question here is what can separate us? What can separate us? And the answer is no one or no thing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. In hard times, we may feel that as though God has abandoned us or given up on us. We may feel that we have fallen out of the grip of grace Hard things in life can cause us to turn away, but nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, in verse 35, Paul mentions these different things here, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, going without, or danger, or sword, or attack. And he speaks not as an armchair quarterback. He's not a a Monday analyzer watching the game in slow-mo. He is in the game. He's experienced all of those things. He tells us in other places in his letter. He experienced real and hard challenges, some of which many of us will never experience. At the conclusion of this section, Paul turns to personal testimony. He says, I am convinced. Verse 38, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We have to be convinced. We have to have a deep conviction that nothing can separate us from God's love. So I ask you today, are you convinced? Have you been convinced? Be renewed in that. Maybe you're struggling with that. Pray and ask God that he would convince you that he loves you and that nothing can change that reality and nothing can take you away. You have the assurance by faith that if you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from his love. And then we see the pairing of terms here in verse 38. It's designed to show the impossibility of being separated. A Christ follower does not have to live in fear of falling away, of accidentally doing something to fall from grace, or constantly wondering whether we're saved or not. The Bible says we can have an assurance. And it's the assurance of God's love that causes us to flourish. 
So Christians can triumph through and over the worst that life brings. We can face all of life, even our own sin, with a different kind of confidence. In Christ, we don't have to fear that present or future circumstances will call into question our relationship with God and His great love for us. That is such good news. That gives us a confidence that God is for us, and that enables us to become people who are for others, who are outwardly focused. It takes us away with our own, from our own self-obsession with, with our to-do lists and our, and our have we done the right thing and am I in the right place. Friend, if you are in Christ, you are in good standing with God. He is for you. Nothing can, can convict you. You are His. Nothing can separate you from His love. That gives us a confidence and assurance like nothing the world can offer. So what do we do with this promise? What, what difference does it make? I really think this truth is so foundational, it affects every aspect of our life in Christ. So first of all, it should inspire our worship. Inspire our worship. This God that loves us so much, we should have a desire to be engaged and to be joyful and to be intentional and to be regular in our worship of Him. To be reminded of this God that loves us so much. That should inspire our hearts to worship. But it should also fuel our discipleship. It should create in us a desire to want to become these people who reflect our Creator. Should lift our hearts, should fill our souls, it should give us the resources to become these people. It should fuel our discipleship. Thirdly, it should unite our community. The gospel unites us because it puts us all on a level playing field, it gives us all a common mission and purpose. And the gospel is the most unifying force the world has ever seen. I really believe that. It ought to unify us as the people of God, and it ought to be a message that we leverage to the world, that we can tell people, whoever they are, God is for you. He's shown it because he sent his son, and you need to receive that gift. You need to surrender your life to all of who God is. But it's a unifying force. And fourthly, this truth should empower our mission. Assurance of our salvation should not lead to apathy. Some people believe that it does. There's people who even won't preach the assurance that I believe that the Bible gives us because they think, well, no, if people are assured that, that, that nothing can separate them from God's love, then they won't be motivated. I think that's not true at all. I think when we really understand the love of God, we will absolutely want to share that with others. We will absolutely want to know Him better and to live in to the mission that he has for us. When we really understand the gospel, it empowers our mission. We can go forward with a confidence. We can serve with a boldness because we know that God is with us and therefore nothing can stand against us. Nothing can stand against God's purpose in the world. Nothing. We need to believe that. We need to have a conviction and I think that it will change the way that we live. And so one of the ways uh, that we want to demonstrate that we're for you is we want to provide ways for you to continue to grow in your faith, to be connected in community with others. As you came in, there were uh, sheets on the chairs. If you didn't get one, make sure you find one before you leave. Uh, we just wanted to put in front of you a number of ways that we are here to support you 
to help you grow in your knowledge of the Bible, to grow in community with others. I'm also really excited about the growing opportunities that we have right now for support groups in the church. And we've just added a new one called Finding Hope that is for loved ones of addicts. Uh, We have grief share. We have divorce care. uh, A number of different support groups, uh, several different widows groups. Uh, And so these groups are here because we are for you. We want to help you to grow and become the person that God has called you to be. And so I want you to consider if you're not in a community that is life-giving and helping you in this journey of becoming more like Jesus, that you will consider the start of this year as a time when you will commit to being a part of one of those or recommit to one that you're already a part of because we need one another. I pray that this is going to be a year of incredible spiritual growth for us as we live into this mission, this idea of four. It's a powerful force in our world in a time when many people aren't hearing very many positive messages. And it's not just a positive message, it's true. God is for us. And he demonstrated it through the love of Christ. Will you join me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible scripture and the reminder that you are for us. And therefore, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what life throws at us, no matter the depth of even our own sinfulness, God, nothing can change your love for us in Christ. I pray for each of us that we will grow in our conviction of that, that we will know it's true, that we will experience it in profound ways in the upcoming year. And God, that together you will grow us into a church that is for others, that is for our community. Because God, we want to share the good news of your grace, that you're a God that is for us. We give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.